Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a program devoted to information about stroke. Dr. Hesham Massoud tells what to expect when you arrive at the Upstate University Hospital Emergency Department with symptoms of a stroke. The first step is to figure out which kind of stroke you're dealing with. You can't suss it out based on the symptoms because brain damage is brain damage. Nurse Josh Onion explains what it means to be a comprehensive stroke center. We have the most strict criteria for our stroke patients, the most stringent time targets, and the most quality mechanisms for process improvement. And a neurologist who specializes in sleep disorders discusses how sleep apnea increases the risk for stroke. 75% of the patients who come with acute stroke to the stroke unit have uh, sleep apnea. I would say that perhaps half of them did not know it. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear from a neurologist about how sleep apnea increases the risk for stroke. But first, we'll put your questions to a team of stroke experts who will explain when and where to seek care if you develop symptoms of stroke. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. May is Stroke Awareness Month, so I pulled together some questions having to do with stroke, and with me in the studio to answer them today is Dr. Hesham Massoud and Nurse Josh Onion. Um, Josh is the Interim Stroke Outreach Program Coordinator and the stroke, uh, stroke Certified Registered Nurse from the Upstate's Comprehensive Stroke Center, and Dr. Massoud is an Assistant Professor of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Radiology, and his expertise is in stroke and interventional radiology. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So just so listeners know, most of these questions were submitted on the Upstate Medical uh, University Facebook page. So they come from real people, including some HealthLink on Air listeners. And we're going to cover a lot of this in the interview, but I want listeners to understand from the beginning that Upstate really has distinguished itself in the area of stroke care. Um, to be designated a comprehensive stroke center is not just a fancy name. I know it was a long, involved process, but for patients and family members who may need the care someday. Josh, can you explain what that covers? Sure. Um, being a comprehensive stroke center is really a coveted level of achievement for any medical center. Uh, there's different levels of achievement you can get for stroke centers, and the first one being a stroke-ready center. Basically, you can treat a stroke patient in your emergency department, safely give them TPA, and most likely transfer them to a higher level of care. TPA such is as, a stroke medicine. Yes, yep. That's a, a thrombolytic, so it breaks up the clot if you are having that type of stroke. Uh, the next level is a primary stroke center. That's uh, throughout New York State. We see several of those. Uh, that's the next level of designation. You have to meet certain criteria to be a primary stroke center. Comprehensive stroke center is on top of that ladder. Uh, we have the most strict criteria for our stroke patients, the most stringent time targets, and the most quality uh, quality mechanisms for process improvement. Uh, being a comprehensive center means to us that we have interventional therapies as well as we can give the drug TPA. We can do it in a very timely manner. We also monitor the patients very closely post-procedure and post-TPA, uh, report these metrics to New York State. There's a lot of things that we have to do to become comprehensive and maintain it. Uh, this past year has been really exciting for us. We just renewed our designation as Comprehensive Stroke Center with our, our accrediting body, so really exciting for us. And we'll see throughout this interview, this will come out more, but um, we actually, Upstate has a, a reach in multiple counties um, with, with stroke treatment. Um, we're, I'll ask you more about that with Telestroke later. Mm -hmm. But um, Dr. Massoud, one of your research interests on your biography is listed as stroke mimics, and I assume that's things that present, a patient has symptoms that look like a stroke, yeah. but it ends up being something else. But um, So my question is, how often does a patient who appears to be having a stroke actually turn out to be having some other medical yeah. problem? Yeah, and so, you know, it's, it's a good question. Um, up to one-third of the cases, I would say, uh, that we see turn out to be a stroke mimic, and that's because there are a lot of medical conditions that can present with symptoms that are concerning for a neurologic deficit, and any neurologic deficit that's new 
is a stroke until proven otherwise. And so, so what deficit, what, what does that mean? A difficulty deficit. talking, a difficulty um, behaving in the way that they used to, an altered mental status is what sometimes it's, it's referred to as. Sometimes it can be a patient who suffered a stroke, had a great recovery, but then something else medical is going on so much so that the symptoms of that old stroke start to bubble up a little bit more. Um, those are challenging because you have to treat every new uh, symptom complaint as potentially a new event. And so it's important that I communicate that, you know, the, the most important thing for someone who's suffering uh, some symptom that is concerning for a stroke is to present to the emergency room. Because if I can't suss it out that it's a mimic and the time is ticking, I will administer the clot-busting drug because the benefit certainly outweighs the risk. And there's lots of case series that we have in the literature that show us that if someone has administered the clot-busting drug, and in fact they don't have a stroke, there really isn't a consequence to it from a, a patient harm standpoint. And so that's why when we, you know, educate our residents, we tell them, listen, when in doubt, give the medication. And some of the, the, the common stroke mimics are things like seizure. After a seizure, sometimes you can have a unilateral or one side of the body can be weak. That's called a Todd's paralysis. That potentially can mimic a stroke. Um, urinary tract infections notoriously can cloud people's sensorium or their mental status. And is that a language impairment from a stroke or is that a urinary tract infection? That's something that you sort of uh, figure out uh, when the patient arrives. Um, you can have, very rarely, there can be conditions where there is a non-organic cause, meaning you don't find any problem with the brain, and it may be something that is in the realm of, the, of, a, of a mental or psychiatric issue. Um, with that being said, I, 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 I try not to uh, have that bias me, because, you know, everyone can, any person can have a stroke, and everybody reacts to the symptoms of a stroke differently. So being tearful or being stoic doesn't necessarily tell me whether or not this is a real stroke or not a real stroke. It comes down to the neurologic exam, an objective assessment, looking at vitals, looking at imaging, so on and so forth. And then again, when in doubt, treat. So this would be a good time to review the signs and symptoms of, yeah. of stroke. Yeah. So when I talk to my patients about how to think of the signs and symptoms of stroke, I try to make it as basic as possible. And really what it is, is it's a sudden subtraction of a function that you had. I could see, suddenly I can't. I could use my hand, suddenly I can't. I could speak, I could understand, I could feel, so on and so forth. And we have certain scales that we use uh, in, the, you know, in, in EMS when responding to uh, a stroke emergently that sort of focus on the most common symptoms that you see in a stroke. And that's related to the majority of the blood going to the front of the brain. And the front of the brain has the language function, the motor function, which is your ability to move your arm, your ability to feel, things like that. And so that's why most of the strokes occur in that circulation, and most of the scales look at those common symptoms. So paramedics are trained to look for that. Absolutely, mm -hmm. and there are a couple of different scales that are used, and they have a common thread, and there are some additional symptoms that are being added to them to try to characterize bigger strokes from smaller strokes. Okay. So once the patient makes it to the emergency room, what do you do to diagnose whether it is a stroke? I think the first step is to kind of define what a stroke is. And a stroke can be of two types. It can be because of a blockage to an artery, and so the part of the brain that's not receiving blood is dying, and that's 80%. And then 20% is actually a burst in an artery, and that can be a large or a smaller artery, and that's too much blood. That's a bleed. And so those are both strokes, but when we talk about it, we always think of the clot because that's the 80% uh, of strokes. So the first step is to figure out which kind of stroke you're dealing with. You can't suss it out based on the symptoms because brain damage is brain damage. Um, what, it has to, what you do is you get a CAT scan, and the CAT scan will tell us uh, if the patient has a bleed or if they have uh, a stroke. And it really specifically, it just excludes the possibility of a bleed. That's all it does. You get additional scans later down in your uh, diagnostic reasoning that tell you uh, what kind of, what kind of um, clot it could be. So the scans are essential? The, 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 that first uh, CAT scan is essential because it puts you on one or two different care paths. Okay. Well, one of the questions we received is about TIAs and RINDs. Mm -hmm. um, what are those, and how do they how are they relate yeah. to stroke? So, so these are both terms that relate to neurologic symptoms that occur suddenly, and 
resolve within a period of time. And between a TIA and an RIND, they use different time frames as to how they defined how long you can, uh, how long a period before they'll say, okay, this has not resolved in our definition time frame. Um, there's another entity called a TSI, which is essentially a stroke that's occurred with brain damage seen, uh, but the symptoms have reversed. And I think that that's the more important thing to focus on is um, whether or not there is brain damage from the event, as opposed to whether or not the symptoms improved within an arbitrary time frame of six hours, 24 hours. I think those were definitions that had to be made in, a, in an era where we didn't have the technology that we have now and the ability to demonstrate tiny strokes that don't have so much of a clinical manifestation. But make no mistake, any stroke is brain damage and any stroke needs to be treated. We got to figure it out and prevent another stroke. And oftentimes the TSI or the TIA or the RIND, these, you know, these, these terms, they are harbingers of a bigger, badder stroke down the line. And so it's really your opportunity as a physician to diagnose why this stroke happened and to prevent the bigger one that's coming down. It's a preview so of coming a, attractions. It is a preview. Yeah. So if someone who has one of these tiny strokes needs to... I would say if you have a neurologic symptom that is sudden and onset, if it improves or not, is irrelevant to me. I want you to come to the emergency room immediately, and I want you to be worked up for it. And if it's something minor, you may get your workup outpatient in the clinic. You may not need to be admitted. But the first step is not to make that assumption. And I've seen people wildly fluctuate from having big symptoms to nothing, and then big symptoms back and forth, and found you know, pretty significant uh, deficit eventually. So, you know, again, if you're having stroke symptoms, um, present immediately. And if it gets better before you get here, great, but we still got to work it up. And that's something that uh, Dr. Masood talks about is the, the stroke, the classic stroke symptoms. We teach the community FAST, the acronym FAST. It's very easy to remember, very common. It's endorsed by the AHA and taught across the world, essentially. So uh, to, re to reiterate, F-A-S-T, face being a facial droop, uh, A being arm or leg weakness, S being speech, speech trouble or difficulty, and T being time, time to call 911. So these TIAs and mini strokes that Dr. Masood talked about, uh, often our patients will see resolving symptoms on themselves and their loved ones, and they'll neglect to call 911. They'll think the stroke is fixing itself or this isn't that big of a problem. Part of our community awareness is to, uh, what I say, call for all. So whether your symptoms resolved or you're, they're still concerned, don't try to figure it out on your own. Let us figure it out for you. So I teach that to the community as well as EMS, uh, this call for all mantra. So despite the time you last saw yourself normal, despite what you look like now, if there was something wrong, call 911, let us figure that out for you. That's what we're here for. Um, that message is getting across pretty good. We see a lot of TAs coming in recently, an increased number specifically, which kind of helps us understand that they are understanding this fast message and they are all, they are calling 911. So. Okay, well that's and, good to know. And it's yeah. the American Heart Association that endorses American Heart, them. American Stroke Association, yes. They collaborate. Well, let me ask, when a person is having a stroke, can they hear and comprehend what is going on and being said around them? Oftentimes, yes, they can. Now, the, you know, it really does depend, though, on which part of the brain is affected. It's very rare for a stroke to cause a hearing impairment, um, but it, it can be seen uh, where a stroke can affect your ability to comprehend or your ability to express yourself. Can you tell by, I mean, how do you tell if the person understands what's happening? We have a neurologic exam that we do, we do and we have them uh, follow some commands, simple and complicated, one-step and two-step, three-step commands, and then we're able to kind of figure out how much uh, the patient can understand. And assuming they do understand, is it important to address them during the treatment? Absolutely. Sure. I would say is it's that... important to address every patient, whether or not you're able to uh, objectively assess that they can understand. I would assume, and, and I make this assumption and tell my trainees that anytime you enter a patient's room, whether this is someone who's on the floor or someone in the neuro ICU who may be, you know, you know sedated, uh, is to address them and to talk them through the exam as you're doing it and to make the assumption that they can hear everything. All right. Well, we've heard how important it is to call 911 at the first sign or that someone may be having a stroke. But in the time it takes the ambulance to get there, what should the loved one do uh, or not do for the person that, that may be having the stroke? Is You know, for a stroke, it really the big difference maker is alerting uh, emergency services to get the patient here as quickly as possible. 
uh, it's not the kind of um, situation where you know we want you to stabilize the patient's neck or position them in a certain way to avoid a complication early on. I think it's intuitively important to pay attention to airway, how the patient's breathing, uh, if there is any evolution in the patient's exam that you notify 911 again, uh, that kind of thing. But there's nothing uh, specific that I think uh, is a difference maker uh, other than you know, alerting EMS and uh, getting the patient here as quickly as, quick as, possible. as possible. All right. Some this questions that we're going to ask, though, when we do see you, we're going to want to know any medications that you're taking at home. So if you are with somebody that's had a stroke, uh, if you have a written list of medications or at least know the pharmacy where they fill their prescriptions, that's good information to have. Um, also, the time that the patient was last seen normal is the major time component of this. This is the first question that EMS is going to ask you and the first question that we're going to ask you too. There's treatment modalities that are very specific to that last known well time. So last known well is when the last time that you were seen normal. So um, I was making my breakfast and all of a sudden my face started to droop on the left at 9 a.m. My last normal is 9 a.m. So it's pretty easy. Just look at the clock when you see a stroke symptom. That's your time to start and that's your time to call 911. We'll be right back to continue our discussion about stroke. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air, and we're talking about stroke with neurologist Hesham Masood and coordinator and nurse Josh Onion. Now, for each of the patients that you care for who have a stroke, um, are you always able to pinpoint the reason why they had the stroke? You know, sometimes um, I would say in up to 20 to 30 percent, we, we, we're not able to immediately identify uh, why the stroke happened. Um, we have a lot of things that we do in the outpatient setting uh, for prolonged monitoring that helps us identify things in a delayed fashion. For instance, an irregular heart rhythm may not be persistent but be a risk factor, and it may take us time to kind of catch it, uh, and that's what I mean by doing prolonged monitoring. Uh, but there are some patient populations where you don't really find anything that, that grabs you as to why this patient had a stroke. Usually that's a younger population. In that population, we found that maybe 40% of them can have something called a PFO, which is essentially a potential door between two chambers of the heart that really sort of exclude the vein blood from the arterial blood, and that has implications for stroke mechanisms. Is that a heart abnormality? It's uh, it, one in five people has it, and it's usually inconsequential. Huh. Uh, but you know, the point being that yeah, there there are certain associations that we see in this. Um, group of patients where we don't know exactly why there's a stroke and that's an ongoing area of of research and um, we keep looking you know well i've heard of people having a stroke during sex is sex dangerous for no i mean so sex the physical as far as i understand i think the physical exertion required in sex, on average is around two flights of stairs um, and really the way that it works is the way that i think about it is you know, any time that you're going to have a period of exertion, if you have uncontrolled risk factors like high blood pressure, um, then maybe that will have a lower threshold for, you know, something bad to occur if you were to be under a period of stress. With that being said, you know, it is a form of exercise and it is an essentially important part to returning to society and, and getting back to what you're, what you're used to doing. And so um, I would say absolutely uh, not to consider it at all as a risk factor or as something uh, that uh, hinders you in any way after having a stroke. You should absolutely try as much as you can to get back to a normal lifestyle and not worry about it. But there are some risk factors um, that put a person at higher risk for stroke, right? If you have uncontrolled risk factors like high blood pressure, absolutely. I mean, that, but that goes for any kind of physical exertion is your thresholds are lowered if you have uncontrolled risk factors. And then it's just a matter of a precipitant that crosses that threshold. Um, and controlling those risk factors increases your threshold so that you're more protected. So it's and more about risk factors than it's actually about the activity. And it seems to me some people may have risk factors that set them for a higher risk for stroke and not know they have them, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. High blood pressure is a classic Absolutely. Yeah, that's a silent killer in the background. Another one is uh, an irregular heartbeat that may present itself uh, in the background without you having any clinical manifestation, and that irregularity can predispose someone to having a stroke. 
sometimes we, we discover these things at the time of the stroke, and it's a new onset problem. So I wanted to ask you about aneurysms. Are they ever discovered in the brain before they burst? I'd say in most instances, because of the technology now um, that we're getting CAT scans in more and more people, um, we're able to uh, diagnose these aneurysms before they rupture. And the good news is, is that most aneurysms will not rupture. Uh, we have uh, some clinical variables that we look at, some things that have to do with how the aneurysm looks, where it's oriented towards, the shape of it, so on and so forth, that help us determine a risk profile to determine which aneurysm should be preemptively treated and which ones can be watched um, for interval growth, which would then precipitate a treatment. And that would be someone who had like a CT for some other reason. Absolutely. And I got to tell you, sometimes when we're evaluating patients who have stroke, what do we do? We get a picture of your brain. We also get a picture of your arteries. That completes a stroke workup. And oftentimes we find incidental things when we look at your arteries. And that can be in the brain, the neck, and the chest. Interesting. Um, what's the youngest person you've ever cared for with stroke? So I don't do pediatrics. So I think the youngest I did was a pretty adult-looking 16-year-old, um, and that required some consent from the family, and that was a while ago. The oldest patient I've taken care of recently was over 100 years old. I think he was 104 years old. We gave him TPA, and he went home a couple of days later. And he did really well. A and TPA man. is the, the clot buster That's the clot medication. medication. So um, it typically is recovery more difficult the older you are? Or? Yeah, I, I would say because, you know, depending on how bad your deficit is, we have specialty rehab services that will come in and evaluate you and they'll determine how many hours a day that you can commit or are able to sustain for rehabilitation. And the older we are, the less amount of time that they can do. And so that's why I think in an elderly populations, it's even more important to get that early management to save them from having to go to rehab, which is counterintuitive to what it used to be, which is like, oh, no, 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 they're too old. Maybe we shouldn't expose them. It's like, well, no, because they're not going to do well in a nursing home. So, in fact, you should be more aggressive if that patient is, in fact, up to that point independent. Okay. Then it's justified, absolutely. How do you talk to loved ones about um, the damage from a stroke and whether it's permanent or, or how permanent it is? Yeah. Um, well, fortunately, we have brain scans. There's a, there's a sensitive sequence on the MRI scanner that allows us to quantify the burden of stroke. And it's nice to show patients and their family members the picture of where the damage is in relation to what a normal brain looks like. That helps facilitate conversations. Um, the neurologic exam is a big determinant for me about functional recovery. Intuitively, the worse your exam is up front, the less the possibility is of a full recovery down the line uh, and vice versa. And so the other thing is um, I don't prognosticate for functional recovery early because we know there are lots and lots of variables uh, that uh, come into play after discharge in terms of sustained rehab, quality of rehab, engagement, so on and so forth, that can really be a difference maker. And so I typically see our patients 90 days from the event, and that's when we can start to see the patients plateau in functional recovery, and then I can start to give them an idea of what they may kind of settle at. Um, but that's not to say that uh, rehab beyond that point is not beneficial. You mentioned variables. Is some of it um, based on how much the patient you know, works in rehab? And yeah, absolutely. Here, you, know, you asked a great question about, you know, can patients understand that they're having a stroke and comprehend? And in the patients that can't, they do poor, poorly in rehab because guess what? They don't think there's a problem. And so they don't engage in the rehabilitation. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Patient engagement's a big piece yeah. of it. Well, I've got some more questions, but first let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Hesham Masood and neuronurse Josh Onion about stroke care. And we're going to turn now to some questions that are a bit more technical. Um, there's been a recent trend in urban and rural settings uh, with mobile stroke units, um, ambulances that are specially outfitted for uh, stroke care. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the efficacy of this trend. So the, the idea behind a mobile stroke unit is a, a, a large ambulance that's equipped with uh, a neurologist via telemedicine generally or present, as well as the capabilities to treat your stroke with that TPA, the clot-busting drug. 
in order to do that, you need to have a CAT scanner on this ambulance also. So if you can picture the size of this rig, as we had a portable CAT scanner and a, a nurse and a driver and a, a technologist, uh, there's a lot that goes on to make this work. So we're seeing larger cities across the nation uh, using these mobile stroke units to initially diagnose a patient in the field. Do you have a, a bleeding type of stroke or do you have a stroke that requires the clot buster? That's really the, the main purpose for this type of rig. Now, uh, we've, we've talked about it for the Syracuse area. We're challenged geographically because we have the city of Syracuse and then we have the North Country that we're also responsible for being a comprehensive center in Syracuse. Um, there's a lot of geographical barriers, snow, et cetera, that might limit the use of this mobile stroke unit. It is something new. I'll let Dr. Masood give his feels on this also. Yeah, I mean, I think anything that allows us to triage you to the care path early and get you early management is always gonna be a positive thing in a rapidly progressive disease like a stroke. Uh, like Josh was saying, there, there are considerations though in relation to the resources that are required and if it works for every geography. And you know, like I said, I think the first one in America was in Houston and you know, the roads in Houston are different than the roads in Syracuse. Um, this all kind of started with an experience in Germany with their mobile stroke units. And, and yeah, there is, there is some data that, to show us that there are shorter treatment times when you employ um, this um, ambulance. Um, but again, you know, are, is the ambulance always available? Is if it's tied up in one case, then what do you do for the other case? So on and so forth. We're even finding that when you, des in, in the, at least in that German trial, you know, they had weeks that, that you, they called the, the mobile stroke unit STEMO. So you had STEMO weeks on, STEMO weeks off, but they found that on both weeks, they were doing better. But it's no question that quicker um, treatment equals oh, better Oh, absolutely. Outcomes. And anything we can do to facilitate that uh, is, is going to be a, a huge difference maker. But what is Upstate doing already um, to help facilitate quicker treatment? Yeah, so, um, you know, Josh had mentioned that, you know, these rigs often employ either a, a person, you know, a neurologist who's present and the it's it's hard to, to sort of monopolize the neurologist's time in the in the in the ambulance because not all response is going to be stroke related. Um, so there's telemedicine, uh, which is essentially a video connection, uh, sort of like a FaceTime in the ambulance, um, and and then you're able to talk with a specialist like a stroke neurologist, and that's something that uh, Upstate has worked uh, pretty pretty hard on, and, and Josh specifically has helped maintain and grow a. Um, a telestroke uh, network with uh, with lots of spoke hospitals. I think we're up to 11 right now. Yeah, we have 11. Uh, mostly throughout the North Country, a couple south of Syracuse. And the idea behind and the mission behind our telemedicine services is to really make sure that these spoke sites, emergency departments, could function similarly that we function in Syracuse. Have the neurology consult available within a certain amount of time period of the patient arrival to make sure the patient gets the, the clot-busting medication timely. And what we've been able to do is really shorten the time that the patient arrives in the ED to the time they see our neurologist. Uh, so we're seeing great treatment times from these spoke sites that don't see very many strokes, but they're doing a really nice job with what they see with the help of our telemedicine docs. Uh, we're utilizing air medical often, as well as ground transport to get the patients to Syracuse if they are requiring uh, the next level of therapy, that clot retrieval, uh, or a different evaluation from one of our neurologists on site in Syracuse. We work pretty closely with the regional resources, hospitals, uh, and EMS companies to make sure everything's kind of cohesive across all of central and northern New York. So anyone who's having what appears to be a stroke can access through the hospital a stroke neurologist from upstate basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, we have, we have a, a network and there's a protocol and uh, that protocol is initiated by the ED provider in the spoke hospital based on the time of onset and the therapeutic window. Really, the biggest advantage of having telestroke is for the patients who are presenting within that therapeutic time window for that clot busting medication, which is readily available at all hospitals and all EDs. And so that's why we have sort of offered this time-based, we'll turn on the screen, you'll get a neurologist, they'll help you decide if that patient is a candidate, if it's safe, how to administer it. And then we do an exam, and then based on that, we can triage to uh, even a more elevated uh, level of care. All right. Well, we got a question about the um, consequences of using or not using this clot-busting drug, TPA. Yeah. Um, 
because there's risks with using it, right? Yeah. So the original trial in 1995 quoted a 30% benefit at 90 days. So this is not a typical Lazarus effect that you're, you're doing. This is an investment later down the line in terms of functional recovery. There's a 6% chance of bleeding. 3% of that uh, can be fatal. Uh, so the, with that being said, um, the risk-benefit with those numbers in a patient who's having a stroke favor administering the medication. The problem if you don't get the medication is you're essentially leaving it up to the natural history of that stroke. And depending on how large the territory is at risk, how this stroke wants to evolve or not evolve, strokes are often in the first 24 hours, they're dynamic, they're not static. And if that's the case, uh, then you could actually cheat yourself out of a better functional recovery uh, if you uh, get too afraid of, of the numbers that are quoted. I would say if you're having a stroke within four and a half hours, you should get IVTPA. Okay. And one other question, uh, medication question. This is about the long-term side effects of warfarin or Coumadin. Mm -hmm. um, that's, a, that's also a clot-breaking well, medicine, right? So Coumadin... Oh, which also known as warfarin, is, is not a clot-busting medication. Uh, it's not something that we would give when someone's having a stroke to, to remove clot or break down clot. It's actually something that we use to thin the blood enough that in certain conditions where patients have a risk for forming clot spontaneously, you increase the threshold for that to happen. So you're you're making the blood so thin that it's hard for a disease process like an irregular heart rhythm or thick blood from a genetic predisposition to actually form a clot and go up to the brain and cause a stroke. Now, Coumadin or Warfarin uh, is an old drug and it is cumbersome to deal with because to know that it's working, you wanna have your patients within a certain range uh, uh, and that is determined by periodic blood tests. So it's really a lifestyle. And then the medication interacts with everything under the sun. So you can be under therapeutic or over therapeutic. And if that's the case, then you can be under treated or over treated. And if you're over treated, there's a risk of bleeding. And so thankfully, we're moving away from Coumadin in the most common indications for its use, specifically irregular heart rate and uh, certain conditions where there are clots in the veins to these newer medications, which, you know, were called novel, but, uh, you know, now not so novel because we've been using them for a while, so they're called direct oral anticoagulants. Lots of advertisements on TV. I'm sure uh, the audience may have heard of some of them, but those represent an advancement in, um, in, in the preventing strokes uh, for, certain, for certain cases because they're safer drugs for the most part. They don't require monitoring. Um, so you know that if you're taking it, it's working, uh, less bleeding risk, and uh, more prevention of stroke. So it's something that uh, you're seeing more and more patients are, oh, are being put on. That's good to know. Yeah. Well, this has been very informative, and I want to thank you both for the, making the time to be here and do this interview. Thank you. My guests have been stroke nurse Josh Onion and stroke neurologist Dr. Hesham Masood from Upstate's Comprehensive Stroke Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Sleep apnea is the major sleep disorder associated with stroke and vascular dementia. Today, I have with me in the studio an expert in sleep medicine, Dr. Antonio Calabres. He's a neurologist and the director of medical neurology at Upstate Sleep Center. Thank you for being here, Dr. Calabres. My pleasure. I, I think we ought to start with some definitions so we make sure our listeners know what we're about to talk about. Um, Sleep apnea, that's when you stop breathing when you're sleeping? Yes, this is the condition during which uh, people stop breathing at night while asleep or have uh, shallow respirations, which are, are also uh, pathological. And uh, when there are more than uh, five per hour of sleep, we call it uh, a disorder. 
anything less than five per hour of sleep doesn't uh, really count, but more than five, uh, it does. And uh, there are people who have uh, 60 or 70 episodes of respiratory disturbance uh, per hour of sleep during uh, the night. And uh, this may be associated with uh, low oxygen levels in blood, which could be rather uh, dangerous in terms of uh, causing uh, disturbances everywhere in the body, but uh, specifically at the level of the brain and heart. So 60 or 70 episodes, I mean, that doesn't sound like they're getting much air at all if, they're, if they have that many times that they stop breathing, right? Well, actually, they do get air because they don't die. And nobody dies or very, very seldom people die in their sleep as a result of sleep apnea. And uh, the uh, reason why they do not die if they stop breathing is because the brain has alerting systems. And when the brain senses that uh, not enough air or oxygen is coming to the brain, it wakes up the patient. And we call that an arousal. Arousals are uh, awakenings of uh, 30 seconds or less. So they are not recorded in memory. The patient does not remember them. But if there are hundreds of arousals during the night, you can imagine that sleep is fragmented and of poor quality. And as a result, the patient is very tired and fatigued the following day. Oh, that makes Mm. sense. Okay. Well, what does um, sleep apnea do to the body's cerebrovascular system? That's the um, the system where the, the travels the bl- the blood travels through, right? Yes, there are unfortunately many ramifications to the bad things that sleep apnea does to the vascular system. First of all, it raises the blood pressure. So people with uh, severe or moderately severe sleep apnea generally have hypertension. And this is uh, the type of blood pressure that does not respond well to medications. In fact, if there is a patient uh, who is taking three medications or more to control the blood pressure, that person should be tested for sleep apnea because perhaps sleep apnea is interfering with a proper control of the blood pressure. Wow. Now, the good thing is that if uh, sleep apnea is treated successfully, the blood pressure comes down. And it's not uncommon to see that uh, after several weeks or months on uh, proper uh, treatment, CPAP, BiPAP, the blood pressure comes down such that uh, the medications need to be lowered. Okay. So that's a, that's a phenomenon that we commonly see in our clinic. In addition to that, um, sometimes there is low oxygen associated with uh, respiratory disruption, and this low oxygen affects the heart, and these individuals are at high risk for developing uh, atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation, it's common in old age, particularly if there is sleep apnea with low oxygen during the night. And atrial fibrillation is a major risk factor for stroke. Now, that's an irregular heart rhythm? It's an irregular, chaotic uh, heart rhythm that uh, sometimes has no symptoms at the level of the heart in terms of uh, palpitations. Other, t- other times the patient feels palpitations, feels some chest uh, discomfort, feels uh, some generalized weakness. But atrial fibrillation should be treated. And uh, much of the treatment is intended to prevent uh, strokes. In addition to that, when there is low oxygen, that could affect uh, certain areas of the brain, causing uh, what we call microinfarcts, uh, small vessel disease, generally in the central portions of the brain. What happens after many years of this kind of attack on the brain is that uh, the individual gets a situation where the core of the brain is partially disconnected from the cortical regions, and as a result, they develop uh, difficulty walking, perhaps some incontinence of urine, and loss of uh, executive uh, mental functions, 
in addition to poor memory. This is what we call vascular dementia. Vascular. Well, I was going to ask you the connection between sleep apnea mm. and stroke, but you just answered it that um, if, if you have sleep apnea and you lead to atrial fibrillation, that increases your risk of stroke, right? Atrial fibrillation increases the risk of large strokes. Low oxygen during the night in patients with uh, moderately severe or severe sleep apnea, if not treated, could lead to micro or very small infarcts in uh, certain areas of the brain that end up disconnecting the core of the brain with the cortex and lead to this other form of vascular dementia, which also has a long name, Binswanger's disease. Anyway, it does, uh, it's a form of dementia that is uh, relatively unknown outside the neurology circles, but is probably relatively common, particularly in patients with sleep apnea. There are other conditions like uh, uncontrolled hypertension and uh, diabetes uh, that can uh, contribute to this form of uh, vascular dementia. Let me remind listeners, uh, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with neurologist Dr. Antonio Calabras about how sleep apnea increases the risk for stroke and vascular dementia. Now, if someone has sleep apnea and they're being treated for it and they're using the CPAP, the breathing machine at night, and they're vigilant with that, does, does their risk for stroke or high blood pressure, does that drop if, it's, if they're being treated well? That is our assumption. Okay. And that is our hope. However, there is, not, there is no good confirmation that that is the case. However, my strong recommendation is that if someone has sleep apnea, sleep apnea should be treated because we do know that it lowers the blood pressure. And uh, we are hoping that by doing so, the uh, chances of developing other vascular complications, particularly if the oxygen is corrected, that uh, that will improve prove for the chances of surviving without atrial fibrillation, without vascular dementia. But the verification is still not there. So it sounds like if you're diagnosed with sleep apnea, there's not a cure for it. There is control. Control. And we can control sleep apnea with the breathing machines, with CPAP or BiPAP. We can control it. And it makes sense that if uh, sleep apnea causes all those problems during the night, the uh, low oxygen, uh, the uh, fragmentation of nocturnal sleep, the increases in blood pressure, it makes sense to control sleep apnea. And in fact, as I said before, we do know for a fact that uh, high blood pressure improves. It's controlled with a proper treatment of sleep apnea. The other thing that patients uh, notice is that uh, their level of uh, fatigue and sleepiness during daytime hours improves. And people who fall asleep driving their car tell me, no, I don't fall asleep any longer. People who fall asleep at uh, traffic lights, no, it doesn't happen anymore. My productivity at work is much uh, better than it used to be because I have more energy. So um, those are uh, the uh, effects of uh, treating uh, sleep apnea and, of course, uh, quality of life improves. So that's very important. So even though we still don't have good uh, research confirmation, but it will come, but we still don't have it, that uh, sleep apnea prevents uh, strokes and vascular dementia, sleep apnea should be treated. All right. Well, how often do you discover uh, someone who's had a stroke and is in the hospital? How often do you discover that they have sleep apnea and they didn't know it? 75% of the patients who come with acute stroke to the stroke unit have uh, sleep apnea. I would say that perhaps half of them did not know it, or if they knew it, they are not uh, dealing with it uh, properly. They are not using their breathing machine. No one has insisted on how important it is and so on. So it is uh, a problem that we have to face on a daily basis in the stroke unit. So you need to treat the sleep apnea, obviously, right when they're Unfortunately, the uh, proper sleep studies are done 
us uh, outpatients because of uh, reimbursement is not uh, adequate uh, while in the hospital, so this has to be done as uh, outpatients. But in the meantime, we do treat them, although the pressures with, that we deliver are just uh, arbitrary pressures. But uh, we do recommend that after being discharged from the hospital, this patient should be tested formally in a sleep center. Does sleep apnea affect a person's ability to recover from stroke? Yes. Okay. If uh, sleep apnea is moderate or severe, it will affect uh, the rate of recovery from stroke. Among other things, because people who have uh, that type of sleep apnea are not motivated, have poor memory, and their rehabilitation uh, skills are much lower than those who are fully in command of themselves. So yes, it does interfere. And in fact, uh, if the sleep apnea is not treated, they continue to be at high risk uh, for stroke and blood pressure problems and so on. Well, I've read that um, obesity or being severely overweight um, contributes to sleep apnea. Are there things that people can do, preventive steps that people can take so they don't develop sleep apnea? Yes, indeed. Obesity is one of the risk factors for development of sleep apnea, among other things, because uh, the large abdomen interferes with the proper movement of the diaphragm. So the chest is compressed and uh, they don't breathe properly. But also because uh, fat is uh, accumulated in the throat, in the pharynx, and that uh, reduces the lumen, reduces the... uh, Uh, lumen and uh, the flow of air changes as a result of that. So uh, people who are uh, morbidly obese are at high, high risk for development of sleep apnea. Obviously, the uh, prevention is not to become obese, and obviously the, the, the cure, and let me say, let me insist, the cure is to reduce weight to a BMI of about 25 And we are talking about people whose uh, body mass index, BMI, is 40 or higher. So to reduce from 40 to 25 is not easy. They need medical professional help to do that. And uh, But I have seen cases of uh, individuals who have uh, come down to a BMI of 25 and their uh, sleep apnea has disappeared. But not only that, their blood pressure is wonderful and their diabetes is gone. So reducing weight to a proper BMI could be curative. So that's the biggest thing. Yeah. So real quick before we have to wrap up, um, how would someone know they have sleep apnea? If the uh, bedmate or spouse says you snore loudly such that I cannot sleep with you or I cannot be in the same room, If relatives uh, hear the person snoring from outside the bedroom, that person could very well have sleep apnea. If the person says, during the night I wake up and I have difficulty breathing, could be sleep apnea. If the person has risk factors for sleep apnea, such as uh, obesity, and they are sleepy during daytime hours and uh, fall asleep inappropriately, that person could have uh, sleep apnea. So with all these uh, signs and symptoms, they should go to their primary physician. And I'm pretty sure that the primary physician would immediately pick up the possibility that there is sleep apnea and refer the patient to our sleep center for proper testing and treatment. Good to know. This has been very informative. My guest has been Dr. Antonio Calabres, a neurologist with expertise in sleep medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Marianne Whalen, a retired pediatric neurologist, sent us a poem that refutes the argument poetry is too abstract to understand. She shows us the many faces of grieving in her poem called July 30th, 1995. Here is something I have learned, how grief is like the wind. Build your house as well as you are able. Go in, turn the lock behind you. It will seep beneath the bolted door, 
stirring old papers, turning the corner of some unanswered letter. Grief is drawn by unfinished things. Pull down the blinds against the gathering dark. It finds the windows out. Make a fire for warmth and light. Grief moves about the chimney, stirring the old ashes. Grief hitches a ride, coming in on the smoke that puffs into the room, or carried on the fragment of a tune, the scent of something earlier placed in memory. Then again, it waits in small things, the usual cup distinguished from its fellows by a tiny chip, carried on the shoe the dog has found and brought, the hair and the brush, the stockinged present stored against next Christmas, the little stain taken to be sanitized at the dry cleaners and returned with a tag. We couldn't get this out. Then again, like a jealous lover, fickle in attentions, but never letting you entirely go, cutting you off from reply as the other raises the glass, staying the hand, effacing the smile, or freezing it to grin. Grief has its politics, too, which, as you might expect, are isolationist in nature. With time, the airs grief stirs in dissipate, regroup themselves, and move towards other poles, trying each pocket of the earth. Nothing too small, nothing too grand. Prince and pauper, in castle and hovel, feel the wind. Made of matter never lost, grief will return to you, particulate, inextricable from the fabric of your cloak, always moving, always about you. So here is what I have learned, that grief comes on the circling air, that it hides in small things, that it claims the right to capricious but perpetual violation, and that it is not more visible than the emperor's cloak to those who look on, not less real to those who wear it. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, learn about the Salvation Army. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.